love seeing all the first-time guests and new people this morning. As our gift to you, as, as you probably noticed, our gift to you this morning, we made the room extra humid. Uh, you know, uh, Americans are perennially dehydrated, so we're trying to hydrate you any way that we can. You're welcome. No need to thank you. No need to thank me. So, uh, but I really do hope that each of you, whether you're first, you know, you're new here, you've been here a while, I hope that you sensed that we really are glad that you're here. We really are happy to worship God together. And so we're going to begin walking through the book of Ephesians today. Love, I've been very, very excited about this. So it's toward kind of the back of your Bible. It's in the New Testament. No shame in having to look at, you know, the the beginning, the table of contents, that's fine. Okay, around here. Okay, so turn or scroll there. We'll be in chapter 1. So um, the Apostle Paul, y'all heard of him? He wrote this letter to the churches in a city called Ephesus, which is, was kind of the main trading center in the Mediterranean region. Can everybody say Mediterranean region? I'm kidding, don't, okay. So it was, a real, it was full of hustle and bustle, okay? And we know that from Acts 19 that the city of Ephesus that it was cosmopolitan, right? It was multicultural, multi-ethnic, pluralistic. And so they, they had all kind of gods. Really, it sent their, a lot of their worship, if you want to call it that, centered in the, the uh, temple of the Greek goddess Artemis, okay, which explains why a lot in the book we'll see the Apostle Paul really drive home the supremacy of Christ, that he's not one of, God, one of many gods that we're asking you to worship. He is the God of gods. He is the King of kings. He's it. Okay, so the first half of Ephesians, only six chapters, okay, but the first half of Ephesians is all gospel doctrine. Okay, so we're about to wade into the deep waters of God, and we're going to see his big plan to unite all things uh, to, under his son Jesus. Okay, so he's going to reconcile us to God, and he's going to reconcile us to each other, okay, and by his death and his resurrection. Okay, in the second half of Ephesians kind of fleshes all that theology out, and we learn how to live the gospel out in our homes and in our marriages and together as a church and individually, all those things. So I hope you were able to grab a copy of the ESV study journal. We have more at the back, I think, if, if you didn't. So we love giving those out when we preach through a book of the Bible. Uh, those have revolutionized my quiet time, so I can't recommend them more highly. And so especially if you travel or anything, you can kind of keep up with what you're reading. So anyway, love those. So without further ado, if you do, uh, if, if you would, we don't do this often, but if you would stand as we read God's word this morning. In Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, Paul writes, Blessed, praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He makes us that way. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished and sprinkled upon us. He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him you also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him you were sealed 
with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, the down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Thank you for standing this morning. Believe it or not, what we just read is one sentence in the original Greek language. Uh, any seminary student in the room, if you're you know, professor assigns you to translate this sentence, they, they've done you wrong, okay? It's a really, it, it's topsy-turvy, and Paul, his pen starts going, and he just sort of explodes into praise for God. His pen starts going on the unction of the Holy Spirit. He goes on and on and on about how good God is, about his salvation for us. 202 words of God-centered worship, okay? We'll see today that as believers, we're chosen, redeemed, and sealed. So these verses they give us a panorama view of God's salvation for us. You ever try to use the panorama mode on your phone? Uh, iPhones have, I don't know if you, your knockoff phones have, but iPhones have this where you have to like get the arrow to like stay, I, I'm, I find it impossible. You have to get the arrow to stay level as you go across and instead of having this kind of picture of what's in front of you, you get everything that's in front of you. And that's what these verses give us about our salvation. We get the whole picture of God uniting us to each other and to his Father through his death and resurrection. It's amazing. This text, it brings about worship in, in our hearts. What else could be brought about as we read these things? And we see the critical part of worship, the critical detail of our worship is the object of our worship. The, the, the critical detail in worship is not, was the, was the music killer? Was the sermon hilariously entertaining? No, no, no. Uh, you know, but what is the object of our worship? The people in Ephesus, they were worshiping all sorts of people, places, and things. I mean, they were worshiping Greek goddesses and emperors. They were bowing at the altar of commerce and business, trying to get rich or die trying. Okay. They had plenty of objects of worship, but none of it was really working. You know, and Fort Worth finds itself in a very similar predicament. We have all sorts of objects of worship that we, that we worship and adore, us and people in our city, you know, uh, money, right? We see people bowing to that altar all the time, uh, political wins, football, okay, uh, a fun night on the town, people adore and worship, but, but at the end of the night, we kind of still feel like there's something missing, right? And the Cowboys are going to win it all this year, there's really no doubt about that, um, um, you know, if you just look at the numbers, it's really clear that's what's about to happen. Under our quarterback, Dakota Prescott, he is this church's quarterback. Do you hear me? We're in it together. Okay, so that, that, that's clear. But to make such a thing a God or to worship it, really, it takes all the fun out. Success is great, man. To, to, to work hard and to prosper your business, to prosper your career, that's fantastic. But So success is great, but it makes for a terrible God, you know. And so your worship is only as good as what or who you're worshiping. So, uh, so much of what we adore and that we worship is like what, so in 2016, I got a picture of it for you. In 2016, this uh, man was looking around a museum and looking around at all the displays. No doubt he was a dad wearing white New Balances. And he accidentally left his glasses on the floor. And all these, like the next people coming by and on and on, they thought it was like a display. They were like, oh, look at, this is amazing. Oh, I see what the artist was doing here. This really is relevant. It shows how our hearts are, whatever people do when they look at art, you know. And so they're like, oh, this is so, but, and so much of what we adore and what we worship in our hearts and in our city, it's like this. We're like, oh, this promotion, this is it. I'm finally going to be happy forever. Ah, oh, I finally got in shape. This is it. I'm never going to be unhappy again. I finally, ah, oh, look at this. This is so great. But then it's just temp it ends up being temporary and trivial. We end up wanting another promotion. We end up, 
we get the six-pack and we hear there's something called an eight-pack. I, I, don't, I don't know anything about it, but there's always that other next rung to get to. All that we adore and worship that this world offers is just like this thing that's going to go away. So Paul writes to the churches in Ephesus, and he writes to us. We're not reading Ephesian mail this morning. This is for us as well. To direct our hearts to the only one who is worthy of our worship, and that's God, Yahweh. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, he is everything. He's the Prince of peace. He makes all things new. He's the first and the last. He's eternal. He's magnificent. He's the architect of the universe. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He orchestrates governmental leadership across the globe. He's holy and righteous and pure. He is love, and he's risen, and he's alive, and he is who we worship this morning. We don't worship a dead monarch. We worship a risen king, and he's present with us this morning. You know, there are hundreds of names and titles given in the Bible for our God, and I think the the really reason for that is one title could never do it. He's so magnificent. He's so wonderful that we have hundreds of names to describe him, and we're still just scratching the surface. And so in this avalanche of praise of God in Ephesians chapter 1, we see that. And even though Paul was in prison in Rome when he wrote this, okay, he's writing from prison. Even then, he thinks that he just couldn't be more blessed. Look at verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God of our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, all of us in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So the stunning word here is every. Okay, every Christian, every believer has received in Christ every possible spiritual blessing from God. None of the blessings are missing or withheld from any of us. That's crazy, isn't it? Uh, Now, Christians, of course, we get different gifts and ministries. We have different circumstances in our lives, things like that. But we all have every spiritual blessing, not just church leadership, not just like the good Christians, Y'all ever think that? Like, I, I, I'm going to get to go to heaven, but like the good Christians, they really get the blessing. Y'all think that? There was this lady in my home church named Betty Butler, my girl Betty B. Okay, she's one of the best Christians I ever knew, truly. A living saint. She, it seemed like she served in every ministry in, our, in my home church, the church where I grew up. She, she was always taking people, you know, food when they're sick and going to their house. To, she was a prayer warrior, going to their house to pray for them. It seemed like she served in every ministry in the church, she was this fiery old redhead. In fact, she helped my grandparents plant my home church. And so it, it started in her living room. And it just seemed like she never did anything wrong. You know, it's like that kind of person. So uh, when I was a student, when I was in youth group, uh, Sunday school started at 8.30 a.m. High schoolers nowadays, y'all don't know anything about 8.30 a.m. Sunday school. Okay, none of us want to be there. Okay, so this, you know, lady in her 70s, when I was in youth group, fiery old redhead, we'd get there at 829, barely, and at 830 sharp, she would make us all sing, this is the day. This is the day. You know that song? <laughs> Can you imagine what energy it takes to get teenagers who don't want to be up in the first place to sing a kid's song? But she got us to do it, and it was always just hilarious. She would clap her hands, dance around, this whole, her, her hair was huge, this whole thing, and we all, teenagers, it, I kind of did, it kind of did get us going for the day we loved. Miss Betty, right? And so it, it almost seems to me in a lot of my Christian life, like Miss Betty gets every spiritual blessing. I'm going to get some of it, but like really, people like Miss Betty get all of it, right? People like me who've got a past, you know, people like me who said one thing and did the other, who regularly mess up, like, you know, God loves me, but like she gets every spiritual blessing. But Paul is clear that all of us, you hear that this morning? 
all of us get every spiritual blessing. What is every spiritual blessing, though? Like, what are we even talking about here? So Paul's going to show in Ephesians 5, here we're going to look at it in a few weeks, that the best picture of our union with Christ, you hear that phrase? The best picture of our union with Christ is marriage here on earth. The best picture that we'll ever see of it is marriage. And so picture a single guy in his 20s, broke as a joke, dirt poor, not hard for me to remember or imagine, okay. A guy in his 20s, he's dirt poor, and he meets this girl, and he falls in love with her. They fall in love, and a few months in, he actually, he didn't even know when they started dating or when they fell in love, but she actually started a business that's like blown up. She started this business where she sells cat toys, and for some reason, everybody in the world wants one of these cat toys, okay. Now, he didn't set out to become rich by falling in love with a girl who manufactures cat toys, He loves this girl. They fell in love, so he proposes. She says yes. They get married. And guess what? Overnight, he goes from dirt poor to rich. You're like, that's not fair. Well, that's marriage, baby. Okay? (laughs) It's in marriage. It's a whole life union. Okay? What's yours is mine, and what's mine is yours. It's not my paycheck. It's our paycheck. It's not my house. It's our house. So what Paul is saying is that now every spiritual blessing that Jesus has is now yours. It's ours. It's a total union. God treats you like you deserve everything that Jesus deserves. Can you believe that? That's the inheritance that we get as God's kid. That's the union with Christ. Better than anything that Elon Musk's 35 kids are going to get. We are in total union with Christ. That is our inheritance. If you're in Christ, you have every spiritual blessing. Then verse 4 goes on. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, you were not an impulse buy. Okay, God, before the foundation of the world, he, he loves you and he wanted you. And he didn't choose you because you're so good. Okay. He didn't choose you because you really are that impressive. No, he chose you because you're his. Because he wants you. So God the Father sent God the Son to pay your ransom for your sin, die on the cross, And rise again to give you his life. That's why. So that's the first observation if you're taking notes. You're chosen by the Father. That's good news this morning. You are chosen by the Father. Unfortunately, and I know some of you want want me to kind of go here, this passage has generated quite a lot of debate over the past 200 years because of uh, using words like election and predestination. And that's certainly a worthwhile debate. Let's go get coffee. I'll, I'll, I'll talk your ear off about it. That's fantastic. Okay, it's a worthwhile and good debate. But I think within that, especially with regard to Ephesians 1, I think we can easily miss the spirit of this text, which is worship. That's where Paul is directing us. Paul didn't write Ephesians 1 to pick a fight over the millennia, okay? But so that we might worship the one true God. And then peek ahead at verse 13. Yes, okay, so yes, we're chosen and one must believe, okay? Believed in him. Remember, this is one sentence in the original letter, okay? Okay, so election and faith belong in the same sentence. And it's a sentence that only God could write. While we may, we, we may not fully understand it, we can fully embrace it, all right? Someone uh, once asked Charles Spurgeon, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? And he goes, I don't feel the need to reconcile friends, you know, uh, there's no need to reconcile the two are harmonious. Uh, for God, it's not a problem, okay? Just believe both truths, embrace, embrace both truths, and leave it to God to harmonize them, okay? But the truth that I think we can all agree on that we need to preach over and over again with regard to that debate is that all are welcome in Jesus' family. 
I believe when the New Testament says all, I really take it at its word, okay? So when we say all, we don't mean some. When we say all, we don't mean people who have less bad sins than I did back in the day. When we say all, we, mean, we really mean all. But if, if God can choose me, he can choose anybody. Look again at verses 7 to 8. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to how good we are. No. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us and our wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery and insight. Uh, there it is. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose uh, of his will. I, uh, I could have really done better on reading that, and I'm very sorry. Okay, read it on your own later. <laughs> Uh, you know, every other religion is giving swimming lessons to drowning men. That's all they're doing. The instructions may vary, you know, but every other religion is you're in the deepest ocean, in the midst of a, a torrential storm, do your best to swim out, except for Jesus. He alone dives in. He alone submerges. He alone saves according to the riches of his grace. And now, Paul is describing how God saves us. And salvation is kind of a churchy word, right? If, if you're new to the faith or you're new to the Bible, you're like, what are we talking about? So a, a friend of mine once was driving in his car, and a friend of his was in the car with him. They were riding down the road, and the friend of his is not, it's kind of anti-church, not a Christian, uh, he would tell you. And so they're riding down the road, and the, they see a billboard, black billboard with white letters that just says, Jesus saves and then the, aunt, the non-church guy goes, I had no idea that Jesus was so thrifty, right? So when we say these complicated, like Jesus saves, Jesus wants to save you, we're not saying that Jesus only goes to roses on Tuesdays and only shops at Goodwill, nothing like that, okay? It means that in him we have redemption. He's paid the ransom. We have redemption. And this redemption came at a cost. Verse 7 says it came through his blood. We have deliverance through Jesus' blood sacrifice. And this concept, it was really familiar in Roman society with the redemption of slaves there. But really the biblical foundation, the biblical uh, background is in Exodus, the second book in your Bible. God's people were enslaved in Egypt by the you know, oppressor superpower of the day, uh, by Pharaoh. And then God liberated them from Pharaoh's captivity. And we'll see more of this about like kind of how we were in spiritual slavery in Ephesians 2. But way back in Exodus, okay, uh, we see that Passover lambs were sacrificed and a household would be spared. So they would sacrifice the innocent lamb, paint that blood on the doorpost, and the, ha the household would be passed over. The innocent blood paid the sacrifice that the people really should have paid, you see? And so it's similar for us as Christians. We trust in the blood of Jesus for redemption. We are protected, passed over from God's judgment because the innocent lamb of God was killed in our place. One theologian said, for God to allow such a sacrifice is grace, for God to provide such a sacrifice is amazing grace, but for God to become such a sacrifice is grace beyond our comprehension. And we get to live in this redemption every single day. Paul says now, and he's going to say all throughout Ephesians, that we're not trying to find freedom, but we have freedom from guilt and from shame. We're not trying to find peace. We have peace. We're not trying to find hope somewhere out there like the world is trying to do. We have hope right now today. Look finally at verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, 
and you believed in him. You were sealed, if you underline in your Bible, underline that word, with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, the down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So third, we see we are sealed by the Spirit. The seal, this seal, is the birthmark of God's children. Uh, it's the idea, the word there, is the idea of God the Holy Spirit being the down payment, being the first installment, and the guarantee that God would make good on all of his promises. Okay, so like when I bought a house, I, I put a down payment up so that I'm guaranteeing the bank I'm going to pay 100% of it. I can't lose that 20%, okay? So I'm going to make sure that I pay all 100%. That's the idea that God the Father gives us God the Spirit to seal us as the first installment, the first payment. That's pretty good collateral, okay, that he's going to make good on all of his promises. I love the wording that God the Holy Spirit seals. Who can break that seal? The devil can't have you back. Even you can't break that seal in your own life. God never unadopts his children. Ever, ever, ever. Signed and sealed, your God's forever, no matter what you do. No matter how fast and far you run from God, no matter how often you forget his, his commands and his grace, God's never going to desert his child. Bob Goff says it like this. Are there consequences when we fail? You bet. Often, in fact. But one of them isn't that God pulls away. So there might be a consequence to something that you do, but a consequence of your disobedience is never God leaving you. Never. Never, 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 never. Never. Verse 14 says that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. You know, Jesus did not come into the world. John 3 talks about this. Jesus did not come into the world to bring judgment. Jesus came into the world to bear judgment. He came to set you free from your sin, to free you to worship him, as Paul is showing us here. So, you know, again, every other world religion, you know, they go visit the tomb of their prophet or teacher. Look it up. Every other, but not us. That mug's empty, okay? You can go to Jesus' tomb, and there's nobody in there with Christianity. It's not about visiting some place where someone who once died now lay. It's about living with Jesus. Courtney and I are actually about to go to Israel. We're very excited about it. We're pumped to go. We can't wait. We're going to see all the sites. Uh, and, you know, we're even going to stay at a hotel, like overlooking the Sea of Galilee, all these things, which actually one of my very best friends used to fish there. Some of you are going to get it later, dad joke. But we're not going to Israel to visit a, dan a dead man's grave. Jesus is alive, and he's alive in me. He's alive in you because God the Father has chosen us, God the Son has redeemed us, and God the Spirit has sealed us.